18. Duct Tape and Bubblegum There was a third reason that lurked in my mind as to why I wanted to do the Exodus 90 challenge, as I discussed in my last episode. As I've written at length about in other posts, I was a slow convert to belief in God. Not only came by giving up drinking, but I knew that my faith was not yet rooted deep. Events in my life, plus the addition of the pandemic, made me realize how fragile this world really is. Society is a tenuous thing, held together with duct tape and bubblegum, as are corporations and even families. Like the stock market, the social contract we live under could tumble at any time. Marriages and families crumble every day as husbands and wives capitulate to their wants and desires. Companies that are making money have high spirits, but as soon as a bad quarter comes along, the lukewarm employees begin to flee like rats on a sinking ship. The Wheel of Fortune would spin eventually, not the game show, the mythical Wheel of Fortune, and it would probably spin soon, and I felt that I lacked the fortitude that would be needed in the inevitable chaos. The unpredictable changes of life in society could bring any outcome as we are all pawns in an infinite game of three-dimensional chess. Having read enough dystopian novels and history books, I realized that hard times will come, are coming, will come again, and that's the, the course of history. And we in this American moment of excess and plenty, this is temporary. Moreover, it's obvious to me that throughout history, the one thing that has prevailed and still prevails is faith and the church. Despite a thousand attacks against Christianity, from government attempts to destroy it, or the constant hatred from all sides, including including from within itself and between denominations, still it stands. Somehow, some way, faith in the church remains and never dies. And of course, now it's easy to understand why it never dies. As long as there are people in this universe, and the story told by the Gospels about Jesus is alive in even one person, it will return in full, always and forever. It, it doesn't take a prophet to predict the fall of nations, as the empires of this world wax and wane every hundred years or so. And the prophets of old could feel a nation's decline coming without reading the book The Fate of Empires or without measuring economic statistics. On the 100-year anniversary of World War I, we can marvel at the change in worldly power in a single century, as the Austro-Hungarians must have wondered what hit them. Likewise, I recall walking through the ruins of the Roman Forum in Italy, being in awe of the decay around me where such great names like Cicero and Caesar had walked, and where St. Paul and St. Peter had been, where so many major events once occurred. All the while, I could not help but compare it to the mall in Washington, D.C., since it is just like the Forum, but much larger and more modern. What will a thousand years of time and weather do to the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument? The famous poem Ozymandias comes to mind, where there's a statue in the desert worn down 
and there's, there's an inscription saying how great this king, Ozymandias, is, with the obvious uh, problem of his statue being worn down and eroded into something that looks rather pathetic. So the question for me is, am I ready for that change when it comes? Am I ready for a time when a nation splinters or fractures into a civil war? Was I even ready to handle losing my job? What about my health? What about my life? How about this? Was I prepared to deal with the loss of loved ones? Could I be the rock that others would need in that time? Or would I crumble like sand? Would I stand there with nothing to offer as I used to when I was an atheist and say, let me know if I can help in any way? offering only empty platitudes to the sorrowful. I would act as if mowing their lawn or running errands would help heal their heart when they were really aching for a spiritual solace. Or how about this? Would I avoid talk of God or salvation because I didn't want to look like a Jesus freak? Or would I have courage and be willing to pray with people and offer them the hope and love of Jesus who died for our sins? The way of seeing the world between the non-believer and believer is stark when the real things in life, the things that really matter, come to the fore. I knew that I wouldn't be as strong as someone like perhaps St. Lawrence, who, while he was being burned over hot coals, told his persecutors to flip me over, I'm done on this side. No, I wasn't that strong. But could I be? I do know who was able to withstand all of these changes and stare death in the face and go to it, not without fear, but with courage. It's Jesus, by the way. It's painfully obvious who that person is. You know, he was not able to not only live without sin, but he also could face the greatest sins against him and the greatest insults this world could heap onto someone. And he'd still go to his death with hope and love for those who were literally killing him. It's the opposite of fear. It's called faith and radical trust in God. It is the antidote for fear. The saints did their best to imitate Christ, except they were all sinners. The key thing about the saints is that they knew they were sinners, but still they had faith. The world could take everything from them, beat them, suppress them, hate them, jail them, kill them, and still, there they were, still standing with faith, hope, and charity when they drew their final breath in this world. Even today, Christians are loathed and hated and still being persecuted actively, and still the light of faith continues to pass to the next candle, and the next, and the next, and you can see it every Sunday at Mass, even if there's not as many people there. Even as the different types of Christians, Christian faiths bicker between them, the light still shines in all of them. Lutheran, Evangelical, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic. The light does not go out. And the reason why is because it's impossible to extinguish. The world has tried everything, literally every possible way to bury this belief. And the flame remains today, and still it spreads even flourishing against the fire extinguisher known as the internet and modernity, where hordes mock and deride religious people every day. And they don't care. It only makes them stronger.
that's maybe the most amazing thing. As Jesus promised, the world will, will hate you for it. And he was right. By 2050, Christianity is predicted to be the largest religion in the world. Yet we are told by the media and, and academics today that this religion called Christianity is dying. But what they don't realize is that even if this faith in Jesus is snuffed out in a corner, the fire magically reignites itself in a new place somewhere else. And there's no question that a revival will come again to the places where it is fading today. As you can even see that happen in Russia after a brutal century-long crushing and smothering of people with faith under the Soviet Union. Sooner or later, each sinner lives long enough to face their own flaws, their sins, and there's no video game or drug or car or house or surgery or accomplishment or website or even person that will ever cure the needs of the heart as much as we pretend otherwise, and we pretend a lot. I could only distract myself for so long, and as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until it rests in God. That statement means a great deal to me. The light that I had needed to become stronger. I was like a wooden match, barely burning, and there was one thing, especially, that I needed to shine the light upon. And most importantly, I was wondering, was I strong enough and committed enough in marriage to handle the storms? Could that light remain flickering in the darkest of nights? It took me quite a few years to realize how sacred marriage is, or to even realize that it really is sacred. This is unsurprising to anyone who has the order of priority in life sorted out, but this realization about marriage came to me once I had finally set God on top of my list of concerns instead of not even having him on the list. When you don't believe, those with faith will annoy you with tips like, well, put God first and everything else will fall into place. That is so irritating. It's so irritating when you don't want to hear it. When you're not ordered first to faith, that sentence is like nails on a chalkboard. But then I learned to hear it properly. And now it sounds just fine because I agree. <laughs> There's a saying that unless you, will unless you believe, you will not understand. Or said, a said another way, unless your faith is firm, you will not be firm. And oddly enough, I'm not even mad now about my being out of tune for so long. I just wish I'd sooner listen to the music. An awareness of this gap in my faith probably aided me just enough to say yes to join that Exodus 90 group. Because I really didn't want to jump in with both feet. But I have found that saying yes to new things, things that have a positive goal, is the way to strengthening my belief. However... That must come with a definitive no to myself, which is always vying to be the center of attention. I always want to make myself first, the chosen one of my life, center stage. But for any lasting happiness, the self must be uh, at a minimum of third place. Faith must be forever first, followed by family, with marriage being at the peak of the family, even over the members known as husband and wife. 
And as I said in my episode on the five F's, the order of things that works best for me seems to be faith, family, friends, fitness, finances. And this must be an ongoing project, really a constant one. To grow toward faith requires care and feeding, and some days are much better than others at efforting toward that goal. Anyone who is married knows the struggles and resentments can outweigh the joys if you let it happen. The little foibles of each person become enraging annoyances if we let them. And while we get enraged at others' annoyances, we ignore our own foibles that surely enrage and annoy others. A truly great marriage, I learned, requires submission of both people toward this mystical union known as marriage. For so many years, I failed to understand what marriage actually is, and I don't think I truly understood the word marriage until I listened to Tim Keller's series on the topic. The irony is that while being married and seemingly functional in that state, I was walking blind and oblivious to the entire purpose. I guess it didn't help that I was a huge Sublime fan, and he has an entire song sort of tearing down marriage. Uh, with a lyric that marriage is an institution that is in decay, it doesn't work in the world today. Well, it does, but not if you have that attitude about it. If you are married and struggling, or considering marriage, or even in a relationship, or if you're thinking of getting into a relationship, or maybe you're thinking of getting a pet, or maybe you're just alive and you're drawing oxygen from the atmosphere and breathing, then I would encourage you to skip your next Netflix series and give these these Tim Keller podcasts links I will have with the show notes here. Give them a listen. In fact, turn my podcast off and listen to those. I came across this series and realized that having a terrific marriage does not require fasting in the desert for 40 days. It's actually much simpler than that. This, too, is a kind of why did Peter sink story, because when you lose focus on the purpose of marriage, that ship starts to sink. Having a great marriage requires recognizing it as something sacred and giving all to that union. And in those, in those podcast links uh, from Tim Keller, it's, it's very pointed about how why, why you're failing, why are things are not going well. It's always self-centeredness always. As a non-believer, this idea of the sacred was a joke to me, and that was exactly why I had no anchors in life. A good marriage requires knowing and committing to this unassailable idea that the essence of marriage is a promise. It's a promise. It's one that you made, and if you're not promising to that daily, then you're fading. The cause of every problem is self-centeredness. The modern idea that the other person needs to make you happy is a recipe for failure, as we see every day in our culture. The reality is that each person must submit to the other and to the marriage, completely and wholly. The way to success is the exact opposite of what modern society is teaching us about relationships. Consider this saying that is so common right now. If you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. That is probably the worst advice and most openly selfish relationship quote imaginable. 
but it's now being passed about as sage wisdom. Okay, there is much more that I can reiterate here, but I will leave these links to the series, the podcast of Keller Sermons, but there are just a few prerequisites, I would say, before you listen to them. Turn off any distractions, set aside your cynicism, and stop clutching your grudges about your wife or girlfriend. The only thing you have to lose is your ego.